You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 10, as that's where we're going to be hanging out this afternoon. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go to the back of the room, grab one of the hardback black ones, um, and and definitely feel free to use that. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to keep that one. We want you to have God's Word in your hand and be able to take it home. So this is our gift to you. And now as way of reminder, we are currently in our Advent series, which we have titled, For This Reason I Have Come. And in the series, we have set out to look at four different purpose statements given to us by Jesus for why he came to earth. All four of these statements, along with at least three others, have been recorded in the Gospel of John. So that's where we're going to be today. And the passage we'll be focusing on is John 10.10, in which we see that the reason Jesus came was to give life and that we would have it abundantly. So the, the passage we're going to be reading today is John 10, 7 through 11. And here's what it says. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is God's word. So would you pray with me? Well, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and the gift that it is to us, your people. And God, in your word, you tell us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but that your word will stand forever. And so would you help us to take these words seriously, that we wouldn't overlook them or forget them, but in fact, we would believe them. And so now as we open our Bibles, Lord, we ask that for your help, would you by your spirit open our eyes so that we may see and behold the wondrous things found in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in light of it being the Christmas season, which inevitably means um, that the Nowickies are watching a ton of Christmas movies, um, the other night my family and I were watching one of my favorites, and it's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the one with Jim Carrey. And at this point in my life, I've probably seen this movie at least a hundred times. But the other night, I was just struck by something that happens in this particular scene in the movie. Um, And whether you've seen this movie or not, there's this one scene towards the beginning where the entire town of Whoville is frantically shopping for Christmas gifts. They're all running from store to store, spending money like crazy. Receipts are literally flying out of the registers. Shelves are being emptied. Gifts are being wrapped. And then to add to all this Christmas hysteria, an alarm goes off. As Lou Luhu, Cindy Luhu's father, has just maxed out his credit card. And the craziest part about it is the fact that this entire town starts celebrating this and congratulates him as if he had just achieved something remarkable, as if Lou had just experienced the true meaning of Christmas and the best that this life has to offer. And like I've said, I've seen this movie countless times, yet I've never been phased by this scene. But this time it just hit me. And truly, I don't know if it's because I've listened to one too many Dave Ramsey clips of him telling me that credit cards are the devil, or it's because that I've been wrestling with these words in John 10 for weeks now. And I'm guessing it's a little bit of both. But the thing that hit me was a realization that as crazy as this scene was, in a movie that's supposed to make you laugh, 
This is us. And because it's us, it's not funny. This is you. This is me. This is all of us all the time. And I don't just mean during the holiday season or when we spend a ton of money on Christmas gifts. See, all of us, when co- without consciously thinking about it or not, all of us tend to look for life and eternal significance in things that were never intended to give it, nor do they have the ability to provide it. Like the who's of Whoville, as humans, we far too often treat our souls like a credit card that we continually max out in the pursuit of things that will never truly satisfy our soul, but in the end will only result in a lifetime of physical and spiritual debt with nothing to show for it. As we come to realize that once what looked like the path to life and freedom has really been the road to bondage and slavery all along. And as a result, you find yourself always hungry, always thirsty, always looking for the next thing, yet never fully satisfied and never fully alive. Meanwhile, Jesus, the creator and sustainer of life and all the things of earth, is inviting us into something so much more. You might even say something abundantly more. And so no matter how you got here this afternoon, I truly believe that God brought you to church today to tell you that the life you've always been looking for is only found in Jesus And so if you're taking notes, the primary message of my sermon is this. Jesus came to deliver life and destroy the lie through the life he displayed. And therefore, my outline comes from this sentence where we'll first see the life that he delivered. Second, we'll look at the life he, or the lie he destroyed. And third, we'll learn from the life he displayed. So starting in point one, the life he delivered. And now to give some context of our passage today, starting in verse 7, we read, Jesus again said to them, which is referring to a group of people which we know from chapter 9 are the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day. And though it's easy to see that the chapter breaks in our Bibles, our divisions in day and time, this is actually the same day as chapter 9, where Jesus healed a man born blind. And he did so in probably one of the most unconventional, unique ways possible as he spits on the ground, rubs the saliva in the dirt to create some mud, and then wipes it on the man's eyes and then commands him to go wash it off in the pool of Siloam. And of course, the man comes back and he can see. And as unique and amazing as this miracle was, when the Pharisees find out that this work was done on the Sabbath, they became furious and refused to even believe that this man was born blind to begin with. Which then leads us to chapter 10, where we see Jesus, as he often did, follow up his healing miracle with a hard message for these Pharisees to hear and believe. And so picking back up now in verse 7, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And then we get to verse 10, which is where we find our purpose statement for today. As he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here Jesus is making the stark contrast between himself and these Pharisees, referring to them as thieves and robbers who come only to steal, kill, and destroy, as opposed to Jesus, the good shepherd, and the door of the sheep who came that they may have life. In other words, the thieves come only to destroy life while Jesus came to deliver life. But the question that begs our attention is this. What kind of life did Jesus come to give? Well, being that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are currently standing in front of him, physically alive and breathing, it becomes clear that this life that he's referring to cannot mean mere physical life. 
because that wouldn't make much sense in the context, nor would it be very appealing even for us today, is he to be essentially offering physical life to already living people. So the life must be something more than physical life, and it must be referring to something that's also offensive to these Pharisees, because we see later in, cha- later in that chapter that after Jesus says this, in verse 19, it says, they became angry and claimed that he has a demon inside of him. So the life Jesus came to deliver is a spiritual life. And the reason why this is so offensive to Pharisees is because of what it communicated about them specifically and what it communicates about the human condition generally. And it's the fact that all of us, apart from Jesus, are spiritually dead. And this is what Paul is referring to in his letter to the Ephesians as he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So how's that for an Advent servant? You're spiritually dead, and you're a child of wrath, and that's where you're destined. So Merry Christmas. (laughs) Thankfully, it doesn't end there, but we read... Starting in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. So the good news of the gospel isn't that God makes bad people good or decent people better, but it's that he, by his grace and mercy, makes spiritually people dead come alive. And that's why Jesus came, to to deliver us life, which is a spiritual life that that we receive from him. And inevitably, it impacts the way that we experience and enjoy the good things of earth in him and through him physically. So the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, whereas Jesus came that we may have life. Now, the phrase that I want to point out to you is this, and have it abundantly, which literally means to have in excess or more than enough or a super abundance amount of something. And so really what Jesus is saying here isn't that he wants us to only have spiritual life, but that we would have this life and experience in abundance, an excessive and super abundant amount of it, an amount that um, is way more than you actually could need, and it's an amount that will never come to an end. And another way to say this is that Jesus wants you to have the abundant life. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear a claim like this, that Jesus wants you to have the abundant life, But what I do know is because of my upbringing at a church that regularly preached what's known as the prosperity gospel, essentially saying, hey, come to Jesus and receive health, wealth, success, and blessing beyond belief. But certain words and phrases like the abundant life can often be hard for me to accept and believe. And and if that's you, here's what I'd tell you. It's the same thing I've been telling to my own soul all week, is do not even for a second let yourself feel bad or shy away from using this phrase. This is a biblical phrase straight from the mouth of Jesus. And though it's often used and abused by some greasy guy on your TV wearing a fancy suit and a golden chain telling you that God's going to bless you with a life of abundance right now if you just give a financial gift of any amount to their ministry, they're not talking about the same thing. Experiencing the abundant life isn't about a new Cadillac or more cash in your pocket. The abundant life is about getting Christ and experiencing more of him. Therefore, when you hear the abundant life, what I want you to think of is experiencing the fullness of life both spiritually and physically in and through Jesus. So I'll say that again. The abundant life is experiencing the fullness of life both spiritually and physically in and through Jesus. 
And you need to know that when Jesus says this, he actually means it. He actually wants to give you life, and he actually wants you to have it abundantly. But if we're honest, though we know this, that this is true, we don't always believe this. But rather, we tend to believe the lie that tells us that God isn't good and that life can be found in other places. And when we believe this, we then seek after those, we, we seek after that through material things that God has created instead of seeking the creator himself. And God hates materialism. Like you need to know that God hates materialism and the love of anything other than him. But it's not because he's an insecure God that is jealous or scared that you might actually find life in those things apart from him. He hates it because he loves you. And he knows that you will only ever find true and lasting life in him. Whereas everything else will either steal your joy, kill your body, or destroy your soul. And now I want to be careful here because I don't want to hear you, have you hear me somehow saying that material things are bad. And that you shouldn't enjoy them as much as you do. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I'll probably go as far as saying the opposite. That our problem isn't that we enjoy God's gifts too much, but it's that we don't enjoy them as much as we should. See, most things in life in and of themselves are not sinful or bad. They just become sinful when we make them ultimate things or use them in a way God never intended them to be used. For example, food, sex, and alcohol are all amazing gifts given to us by God to be experienced and enjoyed in the ways that he intended them to be used. While at the same time, all three of these have the very real potential to be used wrongly and become not only sinful, but harmful to your body and destructive to your soul. When we overindulge in food, which is gluttony, it can cause obesity and other serious health issues. When we have sex outside of marriage, which is adultery, this can lead to sexually transmitted infections and unwanted pregnancies that often lead to abortions. And when we abuse alcohol, which is drunkenness, it can lead to bad decisions and fatal mistakes due to an altered state of mind, which is why he gives us the commands that he does. Not selfishly like an abusive dictator just wanting to hold things back from us, but graciously like a loving father wanting us to experience the fullness of this life in ways that are safe, good, and life-giving. So Jesus came to deliver life. And what I want to contend to you today is the fact that the greatest enemy to you living this abundant life is not your annoying neighbor or your abusive boss or even your childhood bully. The greatest enemy of you living the abundant life are the lies that you continually believe, specifically the lie you believe about God, which leads me to my second point, point number two, the lie he destroyed. And in order to fully understand the nature of of this lie, I want to take us back to its origin and see how it came about. So you don't have to turn there with me, uh, but if you'll remember back to the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, starting in chapter one, we see that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, where he spends the first three days create, in creation, taking what was once chaotic and formless, and then begins forming what is known as the earth into this well-ordered existence. From here, he then takes the next three days to fill in his creation with other created beings that would inhabit the various arenas of land, sea, and sky. Then on the seventh day, God rests from all his creative labor and blesses it and establishes the Sabbath as a day of rest and enjoyment. And then in chapter 2, picking up in verse 7, we get an inside look on God's creation of mankind when he says, Then the Lord uh, God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
So after creating the ground, God then bends down. He grabs some of that dust of the earth and then creates the man by breathing life into him. Then graciously places him in the Garden of Eden, also known as the Garden of Delight, where he gives him just one command. Or as one author puts it, one no in a world full of yes. And here's the command that God gives him. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And if things couldn't get any better for the man, God then makes for the man a woman, a helper fit for him. And from there we see the first marriage happen between the man and the woman. And as a result, the chapter concludes by saying, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And as we see through, uh, as we see, there was a, a real sense of life and vitality and rhythm to this creator, created order. God would create something, declare it good, give a command, and then humanity would enjoy it. And it's here where we see that from the very beginning, God has always been about creating and giving life. And for us to experience the fullness of it, both spiritually and physically in him. To quote pastor and author Joe Rigney in his book titled Strangely Bright, he helps unpack this idea even more for us as he says, In his original righteousness, Adam loved God fully and supremely and expansively. And as a result, he ate his food with a glad and grateful heart. He celebrated his bride with a full and happy soul. And he received his mission with eagerness and expectation at what God would do in and through him. So at this point, you could say that the banner that would hang over all of creation and life in the garden is best summarized in Genesis 1.31, which says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But we know that this didn't stay very good for very long, because in the very next verse we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the, that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So translation, God is not good. And because he's not good, he wants to keep good things from you. That, that's the lie. And so it happened. Adam and Eve believed that lie and they ate the fruit and as a result were kicked out of the garden of delight and now are living in a broken world of sin and death. And and this is the same world that you and I are living in today. A world full of sin, shame, death, and disease. A world made undone by a single lie once believed and now describes our entire existence. And it fuels the engine of our idol factories that we call hearts, which try to pull us further and further away from God. And because of this lie, we have become like sheep without a shepherd in a world full of wolves and thieves and robbers who followed the original game plan of the serpent seeking to steal, kill, steal, kill, and destroy. But even in our sin and rebellion, God made us a promise. The promise is that one day an offspring from the woman will rise up and crush the head of the serpent while also bruising his heel. And this is exactly what happens in the coming of Jesus. And because, and because unlike the deceptive serpent, serpent, our trustworthy God never lies, which is what we celebrate and remember every Christmas season in what theologians call the incarnation, which is just a f- big fancy word for saying God becoming man, the invisible um, made visible, Jesus in the flesh, fully God, fully man at the same time. Christians, or Christmas reminds us that the kindness of God towards humanity as he sees his people 
uh, wandering about with no spiritual shepherd to lead them, feed them, or protect them. And instead of sending someone else to do the shepherding for them, he himself becomes the very shepherd that they need and desire. And if you remember from Luke's account of the night when Jesus was born, who did the angels first appear to? It was the shepherds. Ironically, it was as if God was telling the world, don't worry, the good shepherd, your true shepherd, is finally here. Which, which is the passage that we find ourselves today, often referred to as the parable of the good shepherd, which is, which is the title Jesus refers to himself. And in verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the question is, how does Jesus destroy the lie? Well, we see it's by sacrificially laying down his life for us which communicates to the world the truth about God, that he is good and that he doesn't want to take life from us. And he proves it to us by laying down his life so that through his death we may have life. And now all of this leads me to our third and final point, the life he displayed. And it's here in this final point where we see that Jesus, uh, the life of Jesus is both the model in which we are to observe the abundant life and it's also the means by which we obtain the abundant life. So he's the model and the means. And now starting with Jesus as the model of abundant life, I'd imagine this could go without saying, but I just have to say it anyway, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. If the abundant life is to experience the fullness of life, both spiritually and physically in Jesus, then I think it's safe to conclude that while on earth, Jesus actually lived the abundant life. And he lived it perfectly and without any sin. And because that's true, then we must look to none other than Jesus himself for how we are to live this life. And as we do this, from the time he was in glory until he went to the grave, we begin to see a pattern emerge in the way that Jesus lived his life. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the pattern we see here in Jesus is what one pastor calls biblical self-denial, which is best described as the giving up or abstaining from good things for the purpose of greater things. Therefore, we, know, uh, we must know that as disciples of Jesus, following the ways of Jesus will often lead to denying the self either for the, be the benefit and love of other people or for the sake of protecting your own soul from a distorted love of creation over the creator. And the reason why self-denial is part of the abundant life is because of the fact that it helps keep our hearts in check. And therefore, we're free to enjoy the good things in life without becoming dependent upon them to then give us life. And a perfect example of this is often seen in the covenant of marriage where husbands in particular are commanded by God through Paul in Ephesians 5.25 to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which is what makes biblical self-denial super hard at times. Because if we want to model after the life of Jesus, then it will require us as husbands to give up of yourself for the sake of your wife. Now, I remember a few nights early on in our marriage in particular uh, where it was time to get ready for bed, so I got ready for bed. I took out my contacts, I brushed my teeth, I hopped into bed, and then shortly after my head hit the pillow, I was out. And then a little while later, Kelly would finally crawl into bed, lay her head down, and all is good in the world until I hear the faintest little voice say, Hey, babe, are you up? 
to which most often I would wake up startled thinking that something was wrong or that someone was trying to break in. But really, it was just Kelly seeing if I was up to then ask a follow-up question. Um, Could you go get me some water? I'm really thirsty and I don't want to get up because I just got comfy. (laughs) And in that moment, I had a choice to make. I could say the quick-witted, sarcastic comment that I really wanted to say while laying my head back down on my pillow, or I can shut my mouth, get out of bed, grab my thirsty wife some water, and love her like Christ loves the church. And honestly, I wish I could say that I chose this option all the time, but I didn't back then, and nor do I always do it perfectly now. But thankfully, in Jesus, I have a model to continue to strive after. And even when I fail, Jesus will still and always be a better husband to Kelly than I ever will or could be. And so now we see that Jesus is the the model for us, but now let's look at what it means that Jesus is the means for us to have abundant life, which is what we see most clearly in his self-denying death. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, and you who were once, who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So on the cross, the creator of life took upon himself the sins of man and died in his place and was then buried in the very ground that he at one time breathed life into in in order to form the man. And that's the very man who brought the sin into the world in which Christ died for. But after three days, the earth could no longer conceal this heavenly life as Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven where he now sits on his throne as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and is waiting for his return in the second advent where he will finally come again to gather his sheep to finally and fully experience the abundant life with them forever. So Jesus is both the model for us and the means. by. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.